0: Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. This season, we're building for the Fallout role-playing game. And even if you're not playing Fallout, what we're building here can be easily dropped into the post-apocalyptic setting of your choice. For those who are new to the show, if you need a copy of The Fallout Rules, stop by your local game shop or bookstore, or you can pick up either a hard copy or a PDF of the rules on the Modiphius Entertainment website. That's M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. All right, so for those listening to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider, I promised two episodes of the Build Along this week, and this would be the second of those two. For those of you listening on YouTube, instead of getting two last week, we stuck with the usual rotation, so you only got one. Sorry about that. I am working on something special for you guys, so keep your eyes on the Bad GM YouTube channel. In the first show for this week, we built out a job for our group that had them heading to the Illinois side of the Mississippi River to investigate a group of raiders that had been crossing the river and wreaking havoc on the settlements on the north side of the city. During their trip, the group had their very first encounter with Scorchers, and were probably taken a bit aback by that. Ultimately, the raiders were dealt with, and the group found out that these raiders were somehow tied to Jessica Denman, who we also had touched on in the episode prior. For our build on this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. Over the course of 30-something build sessions, we've basically just gone from fight to fight. Sure, there have been a few opportunities to engage in good role-play and or negotiations, but ultimately the groups had to fight someone to end a scenario. What we haven't done yet is something I've done before in d games, and that's a scenario that has no combat in it. That's not to say there won't be stakes in this or potential death, it just means that rather than it being character versus NPC, it's going to be the characters against themselves. Well, themselves, some puzzles, and a few well-placed traps of some sort. I'll grant you up front that if you've got a group of players dead set on combat and pillage every session, this one's going to have the potential to be a bit boring for them, at least if we're not careful. However, before you pass over this one and wait for next week, I'd suggest you give me a chance to lay everything out and encourage your group to stretch their gaming muscles a little bit. They might just find out they like a little role play from time to time. Or not. Plus, I decided this is going to be the last session for Act 2. So there's going to be some nuggets in here that you're going to want to know and or use before we kick off Act 3 next week. Otherwise, there might be a bit of confusion about how we got where we're ending this one. So without further ado, let's build we will pick up several days after the last adventure with the group doing whatever it is they do around their base of operations between jobs. By this point, that's something your group should have figured out and that you've probably been playing out a bit. If you haven't, this would be a good time to circle the proverbial wagons and have that discussion. Now, if you're not big on role-playing this stuff out, have each group member state what they're doing and if roles are needed to accomplish it, have them make the roles. Otherwise, it can be assumed that what they're wanting to do, within reason, of course, can be done. It'll be around noon on the day in question when a courier arrives with a small package. He can't tell them where it came from other than to say he picked it up from the bodega in Diamond Pass and they got it from another courier who got it from another place and so on and so on. Opening the package, and I'm sure they're going to check it out for any explosives or dangers, there aren't any, they find 500 caps and a note. Lafayette Square, 6pm. More details available then. The handwriting is in a very fine cursive script, and the note itself has the faint smell of berries on it. You decide the berries. There's nothing else on or in the envelope, so the note is all the group has to go on. Now, since they've been in the city for a while, and many of the group, if not all of them, are from here, we can give them a bit of information about the state of Lafayette Square in our Fallout world. While it's a neighborhood on the rise from its lowest point in the real world, in the Fallout world, it's a ghost town. Nobody's quite sure why it wound up that way, since it was considered to be a higher rent district in the period before the bombs dropped. There are no reports of anyone living there permanently, since there aren't any businesses of note there. And while the square still exists, the plants and fountains that were there have been broken up over the years for scrap. They do know that Lafayette Square has become a favorite meeting place for those who want a quiet spot somewhere out of the way to meet in, And of course, they don't want to meet in Diamond Pass or the Dome for security reasons. The square allows for someone to have their security well placed out just in case something goes wrong. Now, that's what they know. If they decide to check with Victor or any of their other sources, that knowledge is confirmed. And the source will add that, so far as they know, nobody's been taken out by someone's security there to this point. It's sort of an unwritten rule. That's not to say that folks don't take security arm to the teeth when they go there. They just don't shoot at each other. That's another thing nobody can really explain. It just kind of happens. So it's up to the group to decide whether they're gonna take this or not. I can tell you this, my group's gonna be exceptionally paranoid about this, especially considering the number of times somebody's taken shots at them. However, with the Tucker Malloy, Jackson Denman situation resolved, they might feel a bit better about a meeting like this. That being said, a group could still decide to not take the job, in which case we'll see you back here next week. If they do take it, they need to decide how they want to handle things when they get there. Now, obviously, the best negotiators and speakers are going to actually be handling the meeting while everybody else in the group's on Overwatch. That means we need to lay things out a bit, at least from the perspective of what the group would know. The actual square in Lafayette Square is in the real world at least, a very scenic place. It's surrounded by two and three-story buildings, many of which have businesses on the ground floor and apartments above. Some are what we'd call walk-ups, which for those not in the know means you walk up to them from street level, frequently up a small set of stairs, and enter through the front door to your house, which looks a lot like most of the other buildings on the street. I do believe this style is also known as a row house in the UK, but I might be wrong and I know you'll let me know if I am. So in the fallout world, all of this is rubble. Some of it sits as high as 20 to 30 feet, and there will be noticeable spots where people have arranged bits of rubble to form a sort of staircase or improvised ladder to reach the top. And it's also obvious that these tops have been arranged to form ledges or perches for someone to lay or sit on to observe the square. There are other mounds of rubble with just enough cover to allow someone to stay on ground level and still have a good shot at someone in the square itself. The closest standing building someone could perch on is about 2,000 yards away, so unless that person is just one heck of a shot, that ain't happening. There also isn't any sort of sewer grates or access to the sewers from here, so if the group is thinking about something like that, they're out of luck. So that's the setup. Like I said, the group needs to decide how they wanna spread themselves out, and if they wanna head that way early to get eyes on the area, of course they can do that. It just means that they'll either be waiting there for several hours, or they're gonna need to find a way to keep busy and return, since it's about an hour walk to there from the pass. If their base of operations is southwest from there, or even straight west a bit, they can cut between 15 and 30 minutes off that time, depending. Now, the group might decide it's worth it to take three hours for one round trip and one return trip, just so they can scope things out, get back to their base and equip accordingly and then return. But as I keep saying, that's going to be their call. And I would make sure you note where everybody is going to be during the conversation. Not that there's going to be combat, mind you, but because of where other security might be placed. We need to know where our people are so that we don't try to put other people there. So once they've made their plan, let's fast forward to 6 p.m. No need to play out the walk back to Lafayette Square. Of course, if they decided to stick around, this would be a good time to do some scavenging. But if they don't have anything particular in mind to do, again, fast forward to 6 p.m. The sun is beginning to set over the city as the group takes their places. Those who are working Overwatch will have no problems finding a place to set up. Those who are waiting to meet are going to feel exposed, especially when 6 p.m. comes and goes without anybody showing up. About 10 minutes after 6, the players on Overwatch will see a man approaching from the south. He's alone and appears to be carrying something. As he gets closer, it appears to be an envelope of sorts. And by this point, those who are waiting to meet can see him, and it becomes quickly apparent that this is another courier. He hands them the envelope, but much like the courier from earlier today, he has no idea where it's from, as he was a pickup from another place who got it from another courier, yada, 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 yada. The courier leaves the envelope and heads on out. I should point out here that while the sun is beginning to set, There's still enough light for the group to read, especially since at least one of them should have a flashlight of some type. On the outside of the envelope, there's writing in the same flowing cursive as before. Delivered to Lafayette Square, 6 p.m. Opening the envelope, there's another 500 caps and a skeleton key. There's also another letter written in the same script as before and smelling of berries. My apologies for not meeting with you in person, but I cannot risk being seen by the wrong people, and that doesn't mean you. The key is to a mausoleum at 15 Park Square on the grounds of the old Catholic Church. I realize you probably don't trust me, and I apologize for leading you on what seems like a wild goose chase, but I can assure you that what is at the end of this journey will be well worth your time. In the real world, 15 Park Square is a Catholic church, so we're not making stuff up here. It's also very close to the Keele Auditorium, so it's back to the north again. It's about a 45-minute walk, and we're going to just do this without incident. Oh, and we're not doing incidents this time because I promised you no combat. If you're in the mood for combat, if that's what your group's into, toss in whatever you want. Now, when I said we weren't making stuff up here, I sort of lied a little bit. There isn't a graveyard on the side of the church in reality, but I decided that in the fallout world, the city didn't go through a lot of the things it did in reality. So the population continued to grow rather than decline, and most of the churches would have small graveyards dedicated to the generations who gave the most or did the most to build them up. And this graveyard isn't very large. It's about 15 yards by 10 yards. There's about a half a dozen graves here, though the markers have long since been broken off. The mausoleum in the center, however, is still intact. That being said, it's obvious there have been a number of attempts to break in, as the group can see pry marks, scratch marks, bullet impact dents, and even scorching, which tells them that whatever this mausoleum is constructed from was intended to withstand a heck of a lot, including, perhaps, a nuclear attack. Now, that should give the group pause, since there's nothing they can think of that would make a structure survive that course the fact that the keel is still standing as well as the stadium for diamond pass and the dome means that maybe just maybe it wasn't as bad downtown as they believe or maybe those structures were just made of sturdier stuff now i'm sure the group's going to be checking for booby traps and i don't blame them by the way let's go with perception plus science difficulty one there aren't any traps on the door and the key does indeed fit it The mausoleum itself is only about 15 feet by 15 feet, so whatever it holds can't be that big. And when they get the door open, they realize there's even less open space, since there are three slabs built into the walls on either side of the door, and each has a casket on it. That brings the open space down to about eight feet or so. To the rear, there's a casket sitting on the floor, and it goes from wall to wall. By this point, the group's probably thinking their mystery message sender is playing with them, but I'll bet somebody decides to search. What they search for is obviously gonna be a mystery, but a generic announcement of searching will work. I'm pretty sure I've been using Perception plus Survival for this, so let's go with that. Difficulty is a five on this one, and as always, one person can assist another person in a search to increase their chances. Now, if somebody decides to specifically search the casket on the floor, drop that difficulty to three, since this is where they're going to find what we want them to find. Success means that they find a button hidden under the rim of the top of the casket. Again, we'll assume a search for booby traps. Same role as before, but kick that difficulty up to three. This time there is a booby trap, and it's a hinge trap on the far side of the casket. That can be removed with a perception plus explosive check, difficulty 4, and the difficulty is that high because of where the trap is located and the lack of space to work with. Once they get the trap taken care of, and it's two fragmentation mines by the way, they can lift the lid and look inside. What they find is a box on one end that has flashlights in it, and a ladder in the middle that goes straight down. Shining their newfound flashlights down, they note that the sides of the hole are made of concrete and they aren't cracked. I know I said sides and I know I said hole. It's a square hole. They can also see the bottom, though it appears to be roughly 40 feet down. The ladder is made of metal and is secured to the wall of the hole with what appears to be iron beam quality rivets. In other words, it's pretty darn sturdy. At the bottom of the ladder, there's only one direction they can head, and it's to the northwest. Of course, they wouldn't necessarily know that. They just know they're heading left. After the trap above, they might be a bit paranoid and want to constantly check for traps. Let them do so with the usual rolls, but don't tell them the difficulty is zero. There's not going to be any more traps until I say so, and they're mostly going to be on the doors. But if you want to drop one in from time to time, hey, let your imagination run wild with the possibilities. After 300 yards of corridor, and these are also made of concrete, they reach another door. This one has an old-style microphone sticking out of it and a riddle painted in block script. What can you break, even if you never pick it up or touch it? Now, the answer I'm looking for is a promise. However, if your group comes up with one that also makes sense, allow it. Now they have to actually speak the answer into the microphone and when they do, they hear the latch on the door give and it swings open towards them leading to more corridor. And I say that because there's no handle and no lock on the door. Forgot to mention that up front. They go through that another 500 yards later, there's another door. Much like the previous one, it has no obvious lock or handle. This time there are three levers to the left of the group and each one has a drawing above it. The riddle on the door is this. What invention lets you look right through a wall? The three pictures are a set of binoculars, a pickaxe, and a window. The idea for this is for the group to pull the correct lever. Now, it should be pretty obvious that the window is the one they should pull, but if they just insist on pulling the pickaxe, if you want to allow it, go ahead. We're also putting a penalty on this one. If they decide to be silly and pull the binocular level, or if you decide the pickaxe is the wrong one, the room begins to fill with a noxious cloud. So long as they pull the right lever quickly, they're just gonna start coughing and sneezing. If they're in there for longer than about 30 seconds, they're gonna each take a die of damage from the smoke, and it's more of an exhaust smoke than anything else. Like the last time, the correct answer causes the door to open. They'll go about 60 feet when the corridor shifts left again. They'll head another 400 yards down before they come across another door. This one has an actual lock and handle on it. And of course, we're going to trap it. But it's double trapped. So that means we need to make two rolls. One perception plus survival difficulty four and another one at five. Both must be made or one of the traps will be set off. The trap with the four difficulty is another hinge trap on the door itself. However, if they missed the other one, they won't know, even if they disarm it, that it triggers a second trap, which is a half a dozen fragmentation mines about three inches into the concrete walls on both sides of them. The reverse is true if they made the five but not the four, and it's three frag mines on the door. It occurs to me I haven't mentioned what the damage is on a frag mine, so let's drop that in here real quick. It's six dice of damage per mine, and they have the blast and mine qualities, while the damage is physical. Qualities don't mean much here, since the blast radius will definitely be enough to get all of your group, so just roll the dice, determine the damage, and watch your group get really annoyed by all of this. Anyway, let's get back to the tunnels. The door isn't locked, so they can head on down the corridor. This time, they go about 1,000 yards and turn left again. After another 200 yards, they run into another door with no lock or handle. There's a bench against the left wall and what appears to be a scale on the right wall. There are two large containers of water on the bench with what appears to be a water tap next to it, and the following is written on the door. To open this door, you must place a container with exactly four liters of water in it. One container holds three liters in it, while the other will hold five. You may not use anything other than the provided containers and water tap. And we are watching you. First off, they really are being watched, but they're not going to figure out how, and the how of it really doesn't matter. Just know if they're trying to cheat the system, the door won't open unless they reset and try again. Now, you've probably heard of this problem before, and you may very well know the solution. But for those who don't, I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. And technically, there are two solutions. Number one, fill the five liter container from the tap, then empty the five liter into the three liter, leaving two liters in that five liter container. Pour out the three liter container, then fill it with what's left in the five liter container. Next, refill the 5-liter container and pour water in the 3-liter container to the rim. That leaves 4 liters of water in the 5-liter container. See where I went with that? Option number two is basically the reverse. You fill the 3-liter container, then dump that into the 5-liter. Fill the 3-liter container again, and again fill the 5-liter, which leaves a liter in the 3 Pour out the 5-liter container, then dump the remaining liter from the 3-liter can into the 5-liter can. Refill the 3-liter can, pour it into the 5-liter can, and now you have 4 liters. You may know another way to do this, but those are what I found online. So once they've got their 4 liters of water, place the water on the scale, sorry, place the container on the scale, and the door will open. And that's the last puzzle or riddle, I promise. They've got another 600 yards to go before they run into a final door. It's locked, but if they check it, perception plus survival, difficulty zero, it is not trapped. So it's perception plus lockpick, difficulty three. When this door swings open, they find themselves inside a very large storage room. But it becomes quickly apparent that something's a bit off. They immediately notice a set of power armor with the symbol of the Brotherhood of Steel sitting off to the side. They also notice several laser rifles stacked next to the armor and Brotherhood of Steel uniforms piled next to that. The sound of faint moaning comes from across the room, and that would also be a giveaway. Crossing the room and working through stacks of crates, they come across a 10 foot by 10 foot metal cell with four mostly naked individuals chained to the bars. The one who's moaning in pain is a female, and when she sees the group, she's able to say the following before she passes out. I'm Paladin Zane, Brotherhood of Steel. We're in big trouble here. And that's where we're going to stop the build. I could have kept going for just a bit, but I wanted to end the second act on a cliffhanger, and I think this will do just fine. I'm sure your group will start talking about a dozen or so different things they're thinking or wanting to do, But unless you happen to be a few episodes behind me and are already moving on to the next one, have them hold it for the next time. Next week, we'll start Act 3 and we'll get into what Paladin Zane meant with her comment. In the meantime, check out our other fine podcast, Roleplaying History. That show also got two episodes this week and we've broken down the D&D settings of Planescape and Birthright. So if you're into old school D&D settings, those shows are for you. And if you aren't, believe me, there's some good stuff there that you can lift for whatever game you're running. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modiphius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out any of the products produced by Modiphius, and there's a lot of really good ones, check out your local game shop or their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license free, royalty free music needs. Bad GM's campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We're on a bunch of social media sites, so check out the info box for this episode or on the Contact Us section of our website. That's badgmproductions.net. Next week, we start Act 3 of our campaign and try to figure out how Brotherhood of Steel members managed to get themselves stuck in a metal cage. But that's next week, folks. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.